Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome to episode 105 of District of Conservation. This is your host, Gabriella Hoffman. Thank you guys so much for listening to the podcast, especially you new listeners. I see there are quite a few of you since the last time I recorded an episode. So thank you guys for listening and helping us crack the top 200 on the Apple Wilderness charts. Before I proceed to today's guest, I wanted to basically tell you guys of two quick housekeeping items. One, make sure... If you're interested in environmentalism, to check out CFACT's upcoming documentary showing Climate Hustle 2. That'll be premiering this Thursday in the evening. I will include links for the show notes. And I only say this because CFACT is a adopter of this podcast. Uh, we work somewhat in sync with one another. And I wanted to make you guys aware of that if you weren't already. So I'll include links in the show notes for you guys to check out that documentary, regardless of where you fall on the spectrum of the climate issues. I think you'll find that to be an interesting documentary. Second, I recently appeared on coffee and a mic where I talked about district of conservation, why I do this podcast. And that's also in the show notes for you that just came out last night. So go check that out. Tell me how you feel about it. Today's guest is Dr. Michael Schellenberger, founder and president of the organization Environmental Progress. You guys have probably seen him on TV recently a lot and on social media because he has really put out the prospect of nuclear energy out in the forefront. He is kind of a very interesting figure in the environmental movement here in the United States. He has kind of challenged somewhat of orthodoxy. He is a Time Magazine Hero of the Environment, Green Book Award winner, and founder and president of Environmental Progress. He also is the best-selling author of the book Apocalypse Never, which came out in June. And the book has received strong praise from scientists and scholars alike. The book has so far been translated into 10 languages, including French, Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, Korean, Hebrew, Lithuanian, I didn't know that, Czech, Slovak, and Polish. And also reading from his biography, he is known as a, quote, environmental guru, climate guru, America's leading public intellectual on clean energy and high priest of the environmental humanist movement for his writings and TED Talks, which have been viewed over five million times. He has obviously lectured and advised policymakers across the globe, including the United States, Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, the Philippines, Australia, the UK, Netherlands and Belgium. And most recently, he testified before the Committee on Science, Space, and Technology in the U.S. House of Representatives back in January. And he has been invited by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in 2019 to serve as an independent expert reviewer of its next assessment report. He has been a climate and environmental activist for over 30 years. He has helped save nuclear reactors around the world from Illinois and New York to South Korea and Taiwan. 
thereby preventing an increase in air pollution equivalent to adding over 24 million cars on the road. He is a leading environmental journalist who has broken several major stories on Amazon deforestation, rising climate resilience, growing eco-anxiety, the U.S. government's role in the fracking revolution, and climate change in California's fires. He lives in Berkeley, California, and we talked at length about what is kind of on his mind, what people get wrong about certain energy sources, and he has some pretty strong opinions on that. We talk about how, let's say, people in environmentalism on the right and the left can come together. He is a moderate Democrat, so it's really interesting to share his perspective. I think it's important you have conversations with people who think different from you here and there, and then also can come together to find solutions for, let's say, pressing issues like whether or not the push to decarbonize is smart or how to go best about addressing these wildfires out west so we ran the gamut of different issues he is really fascinating and it was such a pleasure to chat with him and speak to a fellow obviously native californian i think you're going to hear more from him and he writes a very popular forbes column you can find that in the show notes but here is my conversation with Mike Schellenberger of Environmental Progress. Let me know what you guys think. Mike Schellenberger, thank you so much for speaking with me uh, for this podcast and also for uh, my article. And I guess for YouTube, we're going to, I'll put this on YouTube later. (laughs) My pleasure. Nice to meet you. Yeah. I've been following your work for a while and you are probably one of the most fascinating environmentalists right now, I guess, in American politics and American culture. And I really wanted you to share your story about why you're doing what you're doing, uh, your background, and then just some of your recent advocacy. But could you kind of share your background for my listeners? Sure. So let's see, I'm an environmental activist. I've been an activist for over 30 years. I'm, I am also a climate activist. I consider myself a climate activist for 20 years. I changed my mind about nuclear power about 10 years ago. So I'm known for being an advocate of nuclear energy I was working on a book about nuclear energy last year when the conversation about climate change just got crazy and people saying things like billions of people will die and uh, just ridiculous claims. And my daughter's 14. She's fine. But many of her friends are worried they're not going to live long enough to have kids. I just think that's wrong for a lot of different reasons. Young people have a lot to worry about these days. I think social media is contributing to rising anxiety and depression. I've also long been bothered by my fellow environmentalists who have been trying to basically deprive poor countries of cheap food and energy. I think that's a big motivation to write the apocalypse never. Um, And then finally, I wanted to kind of, I wanted to, I I felt people needed a a new environmental textbook. And so the secret of apocalypse never is that it's actually an environmental studies textbook hidden inside a bunch of what I think are entertaining stories including about some of my travels around the world, about how you save rainforests, what's really going on in the Amazon. But the book is really three parts. You know, it's a debunking of popular myths, such as that climate change is an apocalyptic threat, that the Earth's lungs are burning in the Amazon, that we're causing a sixth mass extinction, that plastic waste is a significant problem, or that plastics should be recycled. They shouldn't, for the most part. The second part of the book is how humans actually save nature in the real world by using more concentrated forms of energy, by living in cities, by concentrating agriculture. And then the last section of the book, the last three chapters, is really about why, if environmental problems are real but not apocalyptic, 
did we come to see them as the end of the world? What's going on there? And I just look at the financial motivations, status and political power motivations. And then finally, what I think is underlying a lot of apocalyptic environmentalism, which is this view, which is really that it's become a new religion, a new way to make meaning out of the world and to cast ourselves as the heroes in our own dramas. So that's sort of a thumbnail of the book. How have uh, most of your colleagues in the environmental space responded uh, so far? Because your book has done very well on the bestsellers list, got a lot of attention. Uh, but what has been the general response from your colleagues? <laughs> Hostility. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, look, I've, 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 I've had a difficult relationship with environmentalists for a while, um, really 15 years. I mean, I first, my journey starts like 15 years ago. I was campaigning for renewables and was frustrated that many environmental groups were being very apocalyptic. This is back way back in 2004, really the early 2000s. And I was, I noticed that for myself, when I would read books about climate change, particularly books by Bill McKibben, I would feel depressed, like literally would feel sad or depressed, but it would linger. And by contrast, when I would read books about the civil rights movement, I would feel happy. And I was kind of like, that doesn't seem, doesn't seem like a very good politics if you're so depressing. And why is that? So sort of the most famous, one of the most, the first essay that we wrote that got much attention was called The Death of Environmentalism. And in it, we asked, we sort of pointed out, you know, that Martin Luther King didn't give the I have a nightmare speech. And that became a widely quoted passage from that, that essay. So I've always been very interested in the psychological dimensions to environmentalism. But really, I didn't know, honestly, anything about energy, about agriculture. And so it's over the last 15 years that I've become more of an expert in those areas. Yeah, I've noticed in the time that I've been covering these issues and having lived in California and grown up there and seeing a lot of these policies percolate, I have noticed a lot of people are, I would say, uh, deviating from conventional environmental speak now, which I never anticipated before. Uh, more progressives like yourselves are speaking out. And, and kind of countering this alarmism, not just conservatives, but you see uh, people across the different political spectrum doing so. I watched uh, Planet of the Humans, which was very interesting, but the conclusion obviously was a little contorted for me, the Malthusian uh, population kind of control uh, conclusion, but it was still very interesting that they just ran through renewables and actually showcased that they're more dangerous than some of the existing fuels and energy sources that people use. Uh, but but do you think um, more people in your field are going to be perhaps speaking out uh, on this, perhaps advocating for nuclear and against renewables? Do you think that's a debate that people are going to start to have more? Yeah, I mean, for sure, things are changing. I mean, just even in the last five years, I've been pro-nuclear for 10 years. I've been campaigning on nuclear for five. You know, as recently as 2016, people would go on to Twitter and claim that nuclear was not a low carbon energy source, <laughs> even though IPCC and all the major scientific bodies show that it is. I mean, how, how could it not be? There's no smoke, there's no combustion in nuclear. So I find that we've really beaten a lot of the misinformation out of the public sector. I also think it's become 
taboo to be a climate activist and anti-nuclear in public. It's been a big problem for Greta Thunberg. She was asked, and I'll take some amount of credit for it, asked uh, repeatedly about her position on nuclear power. She finally came out early last year saying she was basically against it. And there was a lot of criticism of that. I mean, her own country is Sweden, 40% of its electricity supply is nuclear. You know, France is 75% nuclear. France produces one-tenth of the carbon emissions of Germany. Very hard to maintain your anti-nuclear position and claim to be serious about climate change and the environment. So I see it now on that's on the one hand. On the other hand, Nuclear has been good for the environment since its invention in 1957. And so obviously folks have maintained their anti-nuclear position during that entire time, mostly through misinformation, mostly deliberate or, or unconscious or unconscious. So that part I haven't seen the change on. I'll tell you, you know, Personally, I mean, I've seen some things. I mean, the most inspiring, one of the most inspiring things that happened with us is that one of the characters in Apocalypse Never is an Extinction Rebellion spokesperson named Zion Lights. She's a British woman. She's Indian British. Her parents immigrated from India. She's a character in the book. She's famous in Britain because she had this train wreck of an interview with Andrew Neal, who's a very famous BBC interviewer known for being tough. He may have cost Corbyn the election last year. He just grilled her, and it was a train wreck of an interview. And, and so, of course, she's in the book because I'm writing about Extinction Rebellion. But at the end of the book, I talk about how, towards the end of our interview, she told me she was pro-nuclear. Well, you know, I delivered the book to the publisher, you know, in January of this year. But you fast forward to June, two weeks before Apocalypse Never is about to come out, I, we decided that Britain was a very important country in terms of building new nuclear plants. They were actually about to make a decision on whether to build these two new reactors. So I just called up Zion. She's one of two pro-nuclear British people I know. And I was like, hey, I know you're pro-nuclear. Would you consider helping me? Anyway, long story short, she's the UK director for environmental progress. And she's a force of nature. I mean, she's incredible. I consider every day that she's working with us a small miracle. So I don't know if a year from now she's still going to be working with us. But um, she has just, if we build those nuclear reactors in Britain, I think it will have more to do with Zion Lights than anybody else. And so for me, I kind of go, how much has it changed? Look at Zion Lights, you know. And the truth is she's had a huge impact on other Extinction Rebellion people in Britain as well as other Green Party and Greenpeace people in Britain. So um, if that's any indication, then I think... I think eventually, you know, to paraphrase Churchill, we're going to decide, humans will, are going to decide to use nuclear energy after exhausting all other options. <laughs> but domestically, it seems like uh, the country is divided on this and that uh, certain people running for office are wholly opposed to it or they just kind of casually say, yeah, we'll consider it. Here in Virginia, they labeled nuclear a renewable energy source, but they didn't include it in their new uh, Virginia Clean Economy Act. That's one instance. And I've seen Joe Biden not really tackle this. Um, I think Trump has said he, I think they have been championing um, nuclear energy, but there's a lot of opposition to nuclear and still this constant push for renewables. Uh, what do you see in terms of that as a, 
whether it's problematic, um, the fact that it's not showcased more, kind of the resistance to it or opposition to it. What what are your feelings on that uh, on the domestic side? Yeah, it's hugely problematic. I mean, um, I mean, look, I'll say I bet Joe Biden doesn't have any problems with nuclear power. I, mean, I just that guy, I mean, that's just not you know, I know what he cares about. Um, I actually spoke at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. I was a keynote speaker at it in 2013. And he was also a keynote speaker and he spoke about gun control. That's what he cares about. Um, I think Kamala doesn't really care probably either, but obviously Democrats have been anti-nuclear since the fifties, really since the sixties. And that's a very hard thing to shake. In the book, I talk about how there appears to be two separate motivations that are kind of tied up together. One is fear and hatred of the bomb and a displacement, a psychological concept of those fears onto nuclear power plants. Displacement is a kind of scapegoating. Democrats couldn't get rid of the bomb, so they tried to get rid of nuclear power plants. doesn't make any sense rationally, but we're not totally rational animals. And then the other motivation is a kind of, you know, return to nature, small is beautiful. It's also very irrational, very inchoate. We're going to move to a light, small energy living. Those are the two underlying motivations. And you get the accidents, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, Fukushima, which actually turned out to have very small impacts on terms of human health, about 200 deaths total compared to 6 million deaths from air pollution. So you kind of go, it can't be that. And in fact, I see the reaction to those accidents as a manifestation of, of the association of nuclear power with nuclear weapons. Some people see changes in the Democratic Party. You know, the platform says, mm, the platform at what it really says <laughs> I think pro-nuclear people are so desperate for for any signs of success, but Democratic Platform now says something like, you know, have a conversation about what the future of nuclear is and have some R&D. Um, <laughs> but nuclear is just unpopular and it is partisan. As you mentioned, it's definitely much stronger support for from Republicans than Democrats. And, and also much stronger support from men than women, which is a very interesting problem. Um, so, and then renewables, yeah, I just think they're hugely problematic. They, they don't produce enough energy for the amount of land and resource that they require. You know, we know that you could not have the industrial revolution with just wood windmills and water wheels. They required coal in England and fossil energy. And what I point out is that the, the, the land footprint, the environmental footprint of renewables is gargantuan. It's three to 400 times more land is required to generate the same amount of electricity from a solar or wind project as from a natural gas or nuclear plant. 17 times more materials for solar panels than nuclear. There's a big new study that came out in Nature Communications a couple of weeks ago showing that the mining impacts are just absolutely massive. They require more rare earths. I mean, the truth of the matter is nobody really knows this. You know, it 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 is the, the mainstream news media. There's a kind of romantic love of renewables. Mm-hmm. There's two cognitive errors. The first is sort of the, uh, the uh, naturalistic fallacy. That's deriving an ought from an is. That's sort of imagining. It's, that sort of says, well, that, that that's sort of saying, well, because there's climate change, we should go back to living like we did before there was climate change. That's a naturalistic fallacy. But the other one is the appeal to nature fallacy. That's like the person that goes into the grocery store and goes, oh, this brand of peanut butter is better because it says natural on it. The idea is that some things are natural, some things aren't. 
and the things that are natural are better. That's just dumb, right? Solar panels are no more natural than a nuclear power plant. And, and things that are natural include coronavirus. So, I mean, coronavirus is natural. So obviously we don't think coronavirus is good. So, so, you know, and, and these, but these, these fallacies, they operate on the unconscious. And so like just the word renewables, I mean, it just sounds right. I, you know, you point out whale oil is technically a renewable resource, but do we want to kill whales for their oil anymore? No, we would rather use fossil fuels. Yeah. And I think that's also, this is a probably uh, and we can segue into the wildfire situation out West. I have noticed this having lived in California. And I remember when I exited, this push was pretty obvious and, and they were really gung-ho about this, but kind of the push to be a hundred percent carbon free to renewables in California and even the Pacific Northwest at large, I think it's largely contributed to a lot of the frequency with wildfires. And you've talked about this too, about how uh, getting rid of the nuclear plants or shutting down, let's say San Onofre nuclear plants and some others has actually uh, escalated a lot of the problems in set in California's, let's say lands management or or forestry practices. But can you talk about why we are seeing uh, more wildfires, the frequency um, and kind of uh, shed light on the fact that actually um, fire is is kind of a misconception when it comes to land management and, and there's a good way to do it and there's obviously a bad way to do it but can you talk about the history of wildfires in california what we're seeing and then um, whether or not the yeah. push for renewables has contributed to that yeah well let's start with the most basic question which is is fire good or bad <laughs> um i find myself i found myself being was just to be like not obvious that there's more fires now than there were in the past okay now this year we know is a historic fire year but just even a couple of weeks ago it wasn't obvious but i found myself being like well i'm not sure i want to say if, if you say it like that it sounds like what you're saying is that fires are bad but fires are not bad fires are a natural part of every forest ecosystem in california now there's two there's many different forest types but let's just split it into two simple categories There's mountain forests like in the Sierra Nevadas, which are high elevation, tend to be cooler temperatures. Okay, that's one kind. Then there's this shrubland or what we call chaparral, you know, in Southern California. That's more the shrubland, the small fires. Both need fires. They both have different fire regimes. Before Europeans, fires occurred every five to 10 years in those mountain fires, maybe every 10 to 30 years in the chaparral uh, forests. So we know we need fires. Now, the big pro- there's two, there's many problems, but the, the first big problem with those mountain forests is that we had, before Europeans came, regular small fires started by lightning and started by Native Americans, what we call prescribed burns. And they're small. These are really small fires. And they're really important because they burn up the woody debris uh, on the floor of the forest. So that's why when you go to an old growth forest, you see these really big trees and they're pretty open. You can actually walk through those forests without being bumping into. So the Europeans came and, you know, particularly the Northern Europeans, by the way, the Spaniards and other Mediterranean Europeans actually did do burning in Europe. So there wasn't much of this, but they would put out these small fires um, because they thought that the small fires, first of all, they they scared them. They thought they would burn out of control, but they also they were burning up valuable timber. 
Um, and so I was watching these old videos uh, from like the 19th century, these guys putting out these little fires and I'm just going, Oh God, you know, my wife is like, what are you, what are you crying about? I'm like, you can just see what that did is it allowed for all this buildup of woody debris. So now scientists say that the for many of California's forests are basically saturated five times more wood fuel. So it's really quite a nightmare. Um, so we needed more fires in those mountain type forests. Now in the chaparral, the shrublands, they don't need more fires. They get plenty of fires on their own. We have too many fires now. And those fires are mostly started by people and mostly by electrical wires. Now this gets to the issue of, of some of the blackouts and the problems we've had. The utility, the electric utility's job is to clear the area around the wires because if the wires are touching the vegetation, there's a risk they're gonna start a fire. So that's the job of the utility. But the utilities we're here have been obsessed with renewables because of mandates from the government. So, and I don't wanna generalize, actually the Southern San Diego Gas and Electric and Southern California Edison have done a better job than Pacific Gas and Electric, but Pacific Gas and Electric, because it's in Northern California has been under more pressure to do renewables than in Southern California, which tends to be more conservative and less and, and, and more resistant to renewables. So, so part of the reason we had these blackouts last year and this year is because PG&E turned off the power because they were worried about fires. That shouldn't have happened. They should have been clearing the vegetation. They didn't because they were distracted with these other things. <clears throat> so now you get to this year's fires and they're very intense. And that intensity is caused by the wood fuel buildup. Okay, so what is climate change doing? And by the way, you know, I've now interviewed like basically all of the top California forest scientists. So this is not me. This is me as a journalist representing what the scientists are saying. Climate change is happening. It's real. It's something we should deal with. It's something that I think we are dealing with. But nonetheless, climate change is extending the fire season and resulting in a higher temperature. So that is contributing. However, you could have had this amount of warming and not had these fires. And the reason we know that is because the forests that were well-managed, this is my article today in Forbes, um, have survived the megafires. In fact, you have these forests, these well-managed forests, you can see them on a map that survived the megafires and megafires burning all around them. And what happens is the high intensity fire, high intensity fires are just what they sound like. They're burning literally the crowns or the tops of the trees and it's just terrible. They burn up the whole forest. In some cases, they turn the they 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 destroy the forest. And in fact, turn it into a shrubland. These high intensity fires will go from the badly managed forests with all the wood fuel into the well managed forest, and then the fire drops into a low intensity fire. It's a really cool process. Still tends to be a little bit hotter than a normal prescribed fire, but it burns through like a healthy fire would burn. So we know that, this is my objection to this apocalyptic climate rhetoric, we know that a well-managed forest will survive climate change. So I think that raises an interesting question about causality. You can't say, I think, you can't say climate change is causing these really high intense fires if you're avoiding high intense fires in a regime of climate change. And so I sometimes, I think that the way what the, the, what's happened in the discourse out here is that the smart reporters who are all progressive, right? They, they all want to see more action on climate change. They go, well, we're not saying climate change is the only cause of the fires. Obviously, this massive accumulation of wood fuel is a big problem, but they're saying it's a sort of an equivalent factor, but that's just not accurate. You, 
you could you would still you could still very well have these you would very much have these high intensity fires that are burning in California if there were no global warming at all. And you could not have the fires even with global warming. So I mean, that, that's the way that's how I'm trying to simplify it for folks. And I think that's important because I think there's a sense in which if you think the only way to stop the fires is by reducing climate change, then you are basically saying you're not going to be able to stop the fires. And that's disempowering and wrong. And we need to ha- we need to solve these problems. I mean, none of us like there's going to have to be some amount of smoke we get used to. OK, fine. But none of us like I mean, I can't you know, you can't go outside. It's it's crazy. It's like worse than the air in Delhi. I still go outside, by the way, because I do think it's better to be outside than, than to stay inside all day. But nonetheless, nobody likes all the smoke and we shouldn't have to have it. It's just because of bad. The fundamental reason is bad forest management. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's been a history of fire suppression in California. And I remember hearing this from people when I lived back there. I've read more about the issue now as an older person and and someone who covers these topics like you as well. And you see uh, your governor, Gavin Newsom, kind of. I think he did like an influencer like video and photo shoot in front of uh, some of the affected areas. And I think it put off a lot of people. Um, And he has this refusal. I think he signed a plan with President Trump to coordinate something, but we don't hear much about that plan. Uh, But also um, I keep hearing people say, well, because it's the federal government who oversees much of the land in California. And my understanding is the Trump administration has offered to help. I think California's government refuses uh, they have been refusing this for a long time, I think largely, obviously, because they're influenced by the Sierra Clubs, the NRDCs, uh, the different organization interests that don't want anything. They have this preservationist view about forests that they have to, like you said, be naturalistic, untouched. Um, and I also think, I don't know if you researched much into this, but I remember my dad always tells me, like, you have to put in this uh, this issue as well, the, the issue of the spotted owl being labeled an endangered species and how um, that labeling under Clinton's uh, administration actually prevented a lot of private uh, contributions to helping with timber and logging as well, in addition to the Forest Service doing this. But do you see um, those kind of being an issue as well? Uh, Obviously, reluctance from the state government um, pulling back, let's say, private uh, stakeholders who can assist. Uh, What's going on that they're refusing to do, in, in your opinion? Yeah, well, let's just deal with the first issue, which is this completely disingenuous claim that somehow the California governor doesn't have control over forests because they're in federal hands. What other issue does California's governor suggest that we're helpless to deal with it because it's federal lands? I mean, you got to remember, California, you are attitude out here. We're very arrogant. I mean, we're we you know, you listen to the governor, he's like, we're a nation state. You know, we're the biggest, we're the fifth largest economy. We we swagger like crazy. We don't agree with federal laws on fuel efficiency standard for cars. We change them. I mean, that's the whole, Gavin gets into power. The governor gets into power a couple of years ago and he sues the federal government saying, we're going to set the law that's traditionally a federal law. So then they can't have it both ways. They can't then turn around and go, oh, our hands are tied. No, come on. It's ridiculous. Um, that's not, I mean, we swag, we, if we want the federal forest lands managed differently in California, we're going to demand that they get managed differently. Now, look, like you said, after all the strum and drang, there was an agreement that Trump and, and, and Gavin signed in early August that, that will massively increase the amount of, I think it's 20 million acres that will increase what they call fuel treatment. That's either using the mechanical harvesting or what the president calls raking, um, 
or, you know, or using prescribed burns. I don't think we need to be ideological about this. There's some forests where you want to have mechanical harvesting and there's some where you want to have prescribed burning. There's a lot of kind of woo-woo California stuff about how the Native Americans did it. We can certainly learn from the Native Americans, but I think this idea that like it has to be the Native American way or not the whatever, it's just healthy forests are healthy forests. You've got to have healthy forests. Um, now it's interesting. So there, yeah. So you have to go back to the nineties. There was all these restrictions placed on, on how people could use their private forest land, um, in terms of protecting the spotted owl. The funny thing is, I mean, here's what's going on is that the left, and I know because I was involved in forest activism in the nineties, the left's position was of course, more preservation, um, uh, more prescribed burning, you know, um, and, and recognizing that wood fuel buildup is this huge problem in the forest. Well, now you fast forward 30 years to today and the left is like, oh, it's climate, climate, climate change, climate change. And there's a fair number of forest activists and forest scientists who basically hold the same view as the activists who are kind of like, wait a second. You know, we spent a long time trying to establish the need for more prescribed burns in the forest. And now everyone's suggesting that, that it's all about climate change. So I think that's sort of what's happened here is that you see the left has been divided between those who are like, look, we've been saying it's a wood fuel problem for decades. And now the climate activists, including Gavin, are coming along and politicizing this, insisting that this is simply about climate change. It's very cynical. Look, it's politics, right? So it's not I'm not, you know, whatever. Um, but I do think it's destructive to the extent to which there is a way to unify, I think, progressives and conservatives in California and nationally around an agenda of taking care of our forests. But that's the that's that that's not what you get when you start to do this whole climate apocalypse stuff. It's very polarizing. I mean, it was one of my motivations to write Apocalypse Never. You know, I wrote Apocalypse Never really more for Republicans than for Democrats. People, my, my friends who are mostly liberal, they don't know this, but I always point out Apocalypse Never says climate change is real. Like it says humans are causing climate change and we should do something about it. So it's not, it's basically, it's basically saying, look, you know, conservatives, we need to get over, the conservatives need to get over the kind of outright denial of climate change and recognize that's something we need to deal with. But we also, on the left, they got to stop with this apocalyptic rhetoric because it's incredibly destructive and alienating and obviously undermines pragmatic solutions like, you know, clearing the wood field from forests. Yeah, I think um, you're going to see, I, I think a lot of conservatives have actually inclined to your book. I hope at some point I get to read it. Um, I'm still in the process of trying to buy it. <laughs> but I'll, yeah. I'll get around to it at some point. <laughs> Um, myself, but um, I think that like I've talked to a lot of people in in center right politics, and there are ways to work together. I think on the forestry issue, I would have no doubt we would be able to find similar solutions to the problem. But I feel like a lot of people on the left don't want to. They say, well, because you go hunting, or you do this, or you subscribe to this, or you're for free enterprise. Uh, you're not for like this abolish. You're not for this green new deal type plan. They ha they they don't want to sit at the table. I think a lot of conservatives are open minded to trying to find solutions, but you don't find willing partners sometimes on the left. Not saying everyone. I think people like you and others who are open to to trying to rectify the situation are. Uh, but I also wanted to ask you, um, what would you say are the big pressing environmental issues of the day stemming from your book? In addition, to obviously caring about climate, um, but also these forest issues. But but what else is uh, 
something that people should be concerned about. I think you've talked about plastics, uh, trying not to deprive the developing world of certain basic energy sources. But, but what do you think are, are some of the top issues that people kind of overlook when it comes to the environment? Yeah, I mean, so I think the the what I want to do in Apocalypse Never is to kind of pull back from the kind of narcissistic focus that I think a lot of environmentalists have on their own behaviors and our own consumption. There's still 2 billion people in the world that use wood and dung as their primary source of energy. It traps them in poverty. It degrades forests. It results in the consumption of wild animals. Poverty and environmental destruction go hand in hand in poor and developing countries. So we need everybody to be, we need to lift everybody out of poverty and save the natural environment. And so we, this focus on climate change has distracted us, I think, from dealing with many of these more pressing issues. So my view is, you know, climate change is real. We should do something about it. It's not the most serious environmental problem. It's certainly not the most serious problem in the world. And it's certainly not the apocalypse. So yeah, I would say poverty, underdevelopment, the continued expansion of the human footprint, mostly through agriculture, the kill, the outright killing of wild animals. You know, the number of wild animals on earth declined by half since 1970. That's a, you know, if you care about nature, that's a problem. There's a bunch of positive trends, though, that are going in the right direction. So, for example, the amount of land that we use for meat production peaked about 20 years ago and has been going down. Well, that's important because humans use a full one quarter of the Earth's ice-free surface, land surface, for meat production. And it described in the book when I go and see the mountain gorillas of, of, the, uh, of Central Africa or I go see the yellow-eyed penguins of New Zealand, what threatens their habitat is cattle ranching. So if you can grow more food on less land. Now, I was just in the Central Valley of California, which is our, our breadbasket. It's like our Midwest. And I visited a, a dairy farm, and it was incredible. They had hundreds of cows. They would sort of step onto this merry-go-round, this very slow merry-go-round. The machines would automatically milk them. The cows were super happy. So they're being milked, but they had, I mean, they must have had a thousand cows in a building about the size of a football field. Clearly by concentrating food production, we're going to let more land available for nature, for conservation, to return to grasslands or to be parks or whatnot. So I think that's a very inspiring story people need to know about. Now, the biggest, one of the biggest threats to that is coming from renewables Energy production right now only uses about a half a percent of the earth of the earth's ice-free land surface. According to the best estimates, and these are not my estimates, by the way, I always whenever I possible in the book, I rely on other people's science because I didn't want to be accused. I didn't want to have a debate about the evidence. I wanted just to have it about our interpretation of it. But the best available evidence says just if a hundred percent renewables would require expanding. The amount of energy we use from land from 0.5% to 50%. I mean, it's a shocking amount. So if you care about the natural environment, we should embrace these processes of concentrating energy and food production. But also, obviously, when we move to cities, we're, we're, we're moving ourselves. Because obviously, look, 7.5 billion people in the world, we have a big environmental impact. We should care about that. We should be trying to solve it through the same ways that we are lifting people out of poverty. If our solutions are making people poorer, I think we've got a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think there's also a looming debate. And I've seen this on, um, I think it was uh, one of your initiatives about how environmentalism should be streamlined and, and kind of discussed. 
but you, I think you're going to see a lot of people um, debate over whether you can have, let's say, free market environmentalism versus status quo environmentalism. And uh, with the former, obviously advocating for more public-private partnerships, incentivizing landowners. And I think people like that uh, compared to what they have been fed because it empowers them. It doesn't penalize them for wanting to, also, uh, to subsist and, and have their livelihoods, but also to care. I've seen this in Florida. I'm going to be examining um, how a cattle outfitting operation does that and how they're trying to restore grasslands and do that. But you see a lot of people, even out West, when it comes to dealing with endangered species, a lot of people are wanting to be incentivized to do ranching, but also to reduce conflicts with, let's say, grizzly bears or wolves. Uh, but I think maybe I'm incorrect, but I don't know if you you see it that way, that uh, kind of different strains of environmentalism are going to come about to foster competition um, and inject a little bit more reality into, into um, how solutions can go about. But um, I, I hope that would be something that people can consider because you can't just have the purse of government come in and dictate to people, this is how you solve climate change or this is how you solve a problem. Because I think that turns off people. Yeah, I mean, my hope is that Republicans in particular, but center-right parties around the world will embrace a new kind of environmentalism. And I think to some extent that's happening. I wrote Apocalypse Never in, in, in part for my, for my Republican friends. I consider myself a moderate Democrat at this point, but I would love to see Republicans picking up a kind of environmentalism that I describe in the book or what I call a kind of environmental humanism or a pro-human environmentalism. Because I think if, if, if we're not challenging the radical left, if the, if the right is not challenging the radical left, then those of us who favor a more humanistic environmentalism on the left are not going to be able to succeed. To some extent, I think that's happening. To some extent, I think markets are very much important to that. I have a chapter in my book called Greed Saves the Whales, Not Greenpeace. I point out that it was the creation of better substitutes, first petroleum, but then vegetable oil that substituted for whale oil twice, first in the 19th century, then in the 20th century, Whale oil was used for lighting in the 19th century, then it was used for soap and margarine in the 20th century, mostly in Europe. And that the, those capitalist processes, those market processes are really important. This is the work of Hayek. The price, price provides a lot of information that centralized state planning can't provide. But I don't think markets are the end of the story. I think there's something more basic, which is physics. And so I want, I wanted the, I want, I mean, everybody, I'd like the right or left, but I would like for, I, I think that the focus needs to be that there is a fundamental physical dimension to this that determines impacts. So wind and solar projects are going to use three to 400 times more land than a natural gas or nuclear plant in a capitalist society and in a socialist society. That's the problem with the planet of the humans. There's some idea that somehow in a socialist or Ewok society, I don't know what it is they have in mind exactly, that right. somehow solar and wind and wood are, are going to be better. It's just ridiculous. It's just a physical problem. Uh, renewables rely on fuels, including sunlight, water, and wind, that are energy dilute. So you have to spread collectors of those dilute energies over a much larger area of land or use more materials to capture those dilute energy sources. So it's a physical problem. So my view is let's Let's get into this is the environmental studies textbook that I hid in this book is that there's a physical progression. You go from wood and dung to hydroelectric dams and coal plants to oil and natural gas and eventually to uranium. And that's not, you know, that's not markets exactly. Markets can help, but that's basic physics. You use less natural resource 
to produce more energy and food. That's a physical process fundamentally. The, the economics in a well-organized economy, the market economics should support that physical transition. But we, we have seen that the anti-nuclear movement has been so successful at over-regulating nuclear that nuclear plants are more difficult, more expensive to build than they should be if they were regulated at levels that they're the levels of safety that they demand. But even that is up for, you know, in the book I described going to Korea, the Koreans have gotten so good at building nuclear plants, including under this very high regulatory standard, they're actually able to build them faster than coal plants. So, you know, these issues, there's some complexity there, but I do think that this underlying vision of moving towards more power dense food and energy production should be the new environmentalism. It should be at the center of the new environmentalism. And, and we should be aware of fetishizing, certainly on the left, fetishizing regulation, but also on the right, I think fetishizing markets because both regulations and markets can be manipulated. That is very interesting uh, that you believe that and, 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 and uh, are pushing that out there. That, that should be something I think we can take away from it. Um, even if we don't agree with all the premises or, or conclusions. But Mike, where can people follow uh, your musings, uh, buy your book, connect with you, invite you to comment on things? Where, where can people essentially connect with you? Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, you know, Twitter is wonderful right now, I think. Uh, it's an incredible platform. It's less censorious um, than Facebook, in my experience, but certainly Schellenberger MD. The MD are my initials, by the way. I'm not a medical doctor. Mm -hmm. um, um, people are also welcome to email me. I respond to every email I get, michaelschellenberger at gmail.com. And then my organization is Environmental Progress, environmentalprogress.org. I love hearing from folks and it's a pleasure to be able to chat with you. Yes, it has been a wonderful, robust uh, kind of journey into what's trending, what people can think about and, and how kind of a new environmentalism can take hold. And I really appreciate it and you taking your time uh, to speak with me. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Gabriella. I would love your honest opinion about my conversation with Mike Schellenberger. There probably will be some people who disagree with his findings, and that's okay. Dissent is perfectly healthy. I think some people may re you may reassess how you think about certain energy sources. I think there's a lot of discussion to still be had about the rightful place of clean energy and what that looks like. And I think people will start to give serious consideration to nuclear and do more research about that and probably have a different look into how to prevent and mitigate wildfires from becoming so intense. He, like I said, is a super fascinating guy. I think he can help lead us into like a more moderate, non-alarmist discussion on environmental and climate issues. I think many people are clamoring for that, and I brought him on to talk about that and to expand on different ways that people can work together. Make sure to find the podcast listen to past episodes, tell us what you think, chime in on social media, leave us some reviews, and find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Tomorrow, you're going to hear from Bill Cooksey, who is the Sportsman Outreach go-to person for Vanishing Paradise, which is a project of the National Wildlife Federation. And you're going to learn more about him on tomorrow's episode, Tuesday the 22nd. So stay tuned for that. Bill is a delight to talk to. And we're going to talk about how sportsmen and women play in environmental issues. So this is kind of an environmental week. We have someone who works directly in it, someone who kind of works in it, but gets sportsmen's voices out there on these critical issues. So let's have it. Let's, let's 
think differently and, and think openly about different environmental conversations. That's why this podcast exists. Uh, it gets you guys to critically think, to reassess certain things, to challenge conventional wisdom, or perhaps challenge what you're being fed, and just kind of give give it your all. Ideas percolating is super important. This is what this country has been founded on. And whether or not you agree with the musings of the speakers, I still think it's always great to hear from them and to give them your consideration. I like hearing from different viewpoints, people who challenge me to think differently, people who agree with me a lot too. So we try to bring on different folks here. But look, like I said, look out for my interview with Bill Cooksey. And I think you're going to like that too. Much like I think you guys are going to like or have liked hearing from Mike Schellenberger. Stay tuned for tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Leave your feedback.